Listener note before we begin. In this conversation, we sometimes use the term women, but more broadly, we mean people who can get pregnant, including trans and non-binary folks. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Last week, the draft opinion for the decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization was leaked. Justice Alito wrote the draft opinion both overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Everything about what has happened is remarkable. The leak, the decision, and the reasoning. The repercussions for what it means for people who can get pregnant are dire. And if that wasn't enough, the repercussions may as well extend far beyond. Last week, we focused our conversation on what the draft opinion would mean for reproductive access. Today, we're going to focus on the second tier of impact, what this precedent could mean for other civil rights and civil liberties, and what this means for the institution of the court itself. For this episode, we're bringing in our resident constitutional expert, David Cole. David is the National Legal Director of the ACLU and has argued a variety of cases before the Supreme Court himself. He joins us today to help us digest the news as it settles. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kendall. So David, it's been a matter of days since the draft opinion was leaked. So to start with something simple, I was wondering if, you know, you're the national legal director at the ACLU. How is this all settling with you? Well, it's it's profoundly, profoundly disturbing. Uh, I don't think any of us thought before this term began that the court would go as far as it now appears ready to go. Uh, at the oral argument in Dobbs, uh, it, it did seem like uh, five justices might well be willing to uh, overturn Roe versus Wade, but that itself was shocking. These are new justices. Three of the justices are new justices. Amy Coney Barrett's been on the court just over a year. Brett Kavanaugh, just over three years. Gorsuch, just about five years. And, and ordinarily, new justices tread lightly and uh, you would expect, especially when uh, you've been appointed by a president who proclaimed loudly that he was appointing you to the bench in order to overturn Roe versus Wade, that you would be disinclined to do that on your first shot uh, because you don't want to sh- suggest that the court is a political weapon of the president who uses a litmus test. And yet that appears to be what they're what they're ready to do. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it has been a really concerning week. Uh, There's been a lot of debriefing on the draft opinion, what it means for Roe, what it means for people who can get pregnant. Uh, I want to be clear that this is the the core problem. Um, This is problem number one, and all the others follow in importance. So David, can we get a level set on what you see for reproductive access in America right now? What does the overturn of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, what would that mean for the future of reproductive access? Well, it's disastrous. Uh, Certainly in the short term, it's disastrous. It it, it means that I think about half the states uh, will impose either uh, total bans or very, very restrictive um, rules on, uh, on abortion. And so for people who live in those states, the only way that they would be able to get an abortion is by traveling outside of the state. Many of those states uh, adjoin each other, and so you'd have to travel very far 
Uh, You'd have to have the means to do so. You'd have to have the time to do so. You're basically taking away from all women, and particularly from poor women, young women, uh, women of color, uh, who are disproportionately those who, who need abortion care, you are taking away from them probably the most important right they have, uh, the right to control their bodies, their fates, their families. It's really just a very deeply disturbing if, in fact, this draft becomes the final opinion. Another thing I want to touch, again, very briefly on is the leak itself. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the leak, particularly from what it seems to me is like male senators, journalists. It can feel like a method of distraction, but is it, can you tell us a little bit about what the leak means and what it doesn't mean? Well, I think it's hard to know, in, in, you know, precisely what it means uh, without knowing who did it. Um, you know, there's all kinds of speculation. Uh, it is certainly unprecedented that a draft opinion of the Supreme Court would be leaked. It's It's one of the few governmental institutions that has been largely immune from leaks. So that's that is very disturbing. You know, I think it's it's quite possible that uh, it was leaked in a strategic way by a conservative to try to make sure that the five who originally voted to overturn Roe would not shift their positions because it's obviously harder to shift your position once your position has been public. The last time around 30 years ago when the Supreme Court decided was deciding whether to overturn Roe Uh, There were initially five votes to overturn Roe uh, after the argument. Um, But over the course of the drafting, all of which took place internally, Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, switched his vote and decided, no, he thought the better uh, course was to uh, uphold Roe. Um, But it's much harder to do that if your vote and your views have already been publicly um, displayed. So I think it makes it less likely that there will be a shift in the court. It's still possible uh, that there will be a shift uh, away from this majority opinion, um, but uh, I think the leak makes it less likely. Well, it's definitely created a lot of chaos, I imagine, for the court. Uh, I want to turn our conversation toward discussing what this overturn would mean for the Supreme Court. It flies in the face of one of the court's most treasured principles, stare decisis. So first, for some groundwork, what is stare decisis and why is it important? So stare decisis is, is, the, is the basic, it's sort of the, the fundamental building block of the rule of law. It's the notion that um, as a court and as a justice, you agree to be bound in the future by decisions that are entered today and the, and decisions that have been entered in the past. And, the, you know, the, it's designed to ensure that people have stability in their lives, that the rule of law, uh, you know, is predictable, that it doesn't change uh, all that much, and that judges um, have to make decisions based on principle and not based on their gut judgments or their particular reactions to a particular set of uh, circumstances. It's not an ironclad rule. The court has uh, overturned precedents in the past. It's not precluded from doing so, but it has to be a very high bar um, before the court overturns precedents. It's done so, you know, it does so rarely. Um, and uh, it does so especially rarely to, in, in a situation like this, to eliminate a right. Uh, 
Justice mm-hmm. Alito cites, cites Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, kind of remarkably, he cites Brown versus Board of Education, which overturned Plessy versus Ferguson's separate but equal doctrine. And he, he cites that to justify his action as if to say, hey, it's not a big deal. And in fact, some of our greatest opinions overturned prior precedents. And it's true uh, that some of the greatest court's opinions have overturned prior precedents. Brown versus Board, certainly uh, one of them. And Alito cites all of those. Mm-hmm. But what he doesn't you know, uh, acknowledge is that all of those decisions expanded constitutional rights protections. And when you look back at the history of our uh, constitutional uh, 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 doctrine, what you see is that it's essentially an evolving and expanding set of rights. The rights that we enjoy today are be- would be basically be unrecognizable to the framers of the Constitution. And that's because courts have overturned prior rules and expanded rights fairly consistently. Not It's not always expansive, but generally, the general trend is definitely expansive. Very, very rare that the court overturns precedent to take away or cut back on a right, sometimes to cut back at the margins, but to eliminate a right, almost never. So this is a huge, huge radical step to eliminate a right that has been recognized for 50 years and that extends formally to half the country, to, you know, all the women in the country, and, you know, that it really protects uh, all people in the country, because, of course, you know, many, many men who are involved with women in relationships, uh, 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 you know, depend just as much on the ability to decide when and whether to have a family uh, as the as the women do. Um, so it is a, it is a truly radical decision from a st- stare decisis point of view. I appreciate the point you just made there that men also benefit from from Roe because I think that that has been largely missing from the uh, conversation in the aftermath of the the draft opinion. Uh, you did tee up perfectly the the next thing I want to dig into, which is, um, you know, Justice Alito's reasoning behind undoing Roe. He writes that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start because it doesn't have to do with the original intent of the Constitution. Some are calling this logic a direct attack on the Ninth Amendment, which talks about unenumerated rights. So first off, can you give us a little background? What does the Ninth Amendment say or guarantee? And do you agree with that concern based on what you read? So, yeah, the Ninth Amendment was added to the Bill of Rights. Uh, it basically says the, the fact that the rights not enumerated herein are nonetheless reserved to the people or something. You know, that's a paraphrase, but that's basically sure. it. And the idea was to underscore that the list of rights that comes in the first eight amendments, uh, those are definitely very important rights, but they're not all the rights uh, that people have and uh, or should have. And, uh, and I think it underscores this idea that, look, they wrote the Constitution for the ages, not for, you know, a decade, not for 20 years, not for even for 50 years, but for the ages. And so if you're doing that, you have to write in fairly broad terms and allow for evolution. One of the mm-hmm. broad terms they used was liberty. And liberty is the provision that the that the court has consistently uh, used to define a set of decisions that people have the right to make 
without the government intruding upon them. And so those things include things like um, who you live with, um, who you marry, whether you have sexual relations with another consenting adult, uh, where you send your kids to school, um, how you educate your kids. You know, none of them are explicitly set forth in the Constitution, but the court has recognized each one of them as part of this notion of liberty, the autonomy of the individual to make certain core important decisions uh, that should be made by individuals because they affect those individuals so deeply and not by the state. You know, whether and when to have a child is the same sort of decision and therefore is protected by liberty. That's what the court has said for 50 years. What Justice Alito says is, no, we're only going to protect uh, rights when they are not explicitly specified in the Constitution, if they are deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. And so then he then goes back and looks at our history and tradition at the time of the framing of the Constitution, at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, and finds that, you know, no, abortion wasn't a right at that time. And that's true. But neither was the right to marry someone of a different race. Neither was the right to marry uh, someone, uh, you know, of your own gender. Neither was uh, the right to use uh, uh, contraception. These are all rights that have been developed over time um, as the Constitution evolves and as people's sense of what is important to their autonomy uh, develops. Um, so he, he would essentially send us back in time to the time of the framing, the time that the amendments were initially adopted, and say, absent an express, strict, specific guarantee in the Constitution, we are not going to protect it unless it's deeply rooted in history and tradition. And that, you know, is, is bas would basically turn back the clock dramatically. Dramatically, yes. And in, in seeking to justify this dismissal of the Ninth Amendment, he explains that, to your point, liberty isn't our ardent views, in quotes, of, of what freedoms we should have. And so I think people are really concerned about what this means for gay marriage, interracial marriage, and contraceptives. The Obergefell case, uh, which was an ACLU case, it was a five to four decision. This is the case that extended gay marriage nationally. And all of the dissenters in that five four decision are still on the bench. Justice Alito in 2020 notably references the Obergefell decision as, in quotes, ruinous consequences for religious liberty. So he's very clear that he's not a fan. I mean, I think I've seen a lot of discussion about these cases, Griswold v. Connecticut, Loving v. Virginia. What are the implications for these cases should this draft stand as it is? Well, I think that's the $64,000 question. On the one hand, he seeks to distinguish all of those cases by saying this, this right, the right to abortion, is different from all other rights because it involves the destruction of a potential life. And, and, and therefore, you know, you know, the message is, seems to be, well, you know, we're, we're this, this far and no further. On the other hand, um, the doctrine that he, he announces, the analysis that he uses, the method is, mm -hmm. is much broader than that. It says... If it's not expressly set forth in the Constitution, we're not going to protect it unless you can show 
that it was protected you know, in our history and traditions at the time that these amendments were adopted. And that would put contraception and interracial marriage and same-sex marriage uh, at risk. That would put women's equality at marriage, for right. sakes, because the Equal Protection Clause was adopted in 1868 after the Civil War as part of the 14th Amendment. And at the time, it was not understood to um, make laws that distinguish on the basis of sex uh, unconstitutional. Uh, they were they were common. They were upheld for years and years and years. And it was not until the 1970s that the Supreme Court actually ruled that, uh, in fact, the Equal Protection Clause uh, protects women. So you know, any all bets are off if he really means to say that that standard should apply uh, across the board. Yes, and to that end, actually, I wanted to ask you about this acknowledgement of women, notably missing from the draft opinion, are women. Women are not really mentioned as how this will impact their lives. There is a significant difference in omitting women from Roe v. Wade when it was argued, and this is you know an argument that Linda Greenhouse put forth in the New York Times, and omitting women now when there is jurisprudence for sex equality on the books. We have been here. We've done this work. Uh, What do you make of this kind of stark omission? Because it strikes me as unbelievably important in considering that we are talking about the idea of saving lives. And we know that the United States struggles with poor maternal mortality rates, struggles with other policy that would support families and a lot of these um, bans that people are putting forth, there are no exceptions for rape and incest. There are very few exceptions for the life of the mother. Uh, we've seen states pop up with ectopic pregnancies mentioned in their bans. How does this all square with you? So it's yeah, it's very, very disturbing. I mean, in, in two respects. One is he, he essentially erases women from the from the calculus here. Um, the first is he, he sort of has about a, a, a paragraph and a half uh, addressing uh, whether there's an equal protection problem with the restrictions on abortion. I mean, after all, there are no, uh, you know, similar restrictions on any, you know, medical, uh, you know, treatment that a man uh, gets. Uh, and yet every woman uh, ha- faces this uh uh, this 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 effort to control uh, her decision about uh, whether or not to have a child, and uh, and 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 there have been very strong arguments that that raises serious equal protection um, uh, problems. And in fact, in the Casey decision, which upheld Roe 30 years ago, the court um, talked about the role that this decision has played in the um, equal status of women in our society today, and. He essentially um, rejects that and says, ah, you know, um, this isn't discrimination against women. Um, It's discrimination against pregnant people. And since some women are pregnant and other women are not, uh, this isn't discrimination on the basis of sex. Citing a decision that Justice Rehnquist wrote 100 years ago uh, that, that used that same rationale to say that when an employer fires someone for being pregnant, it's not sex discrimination because not all women are pregnant. And that was ridiculous when it was first stated. It was rejected by Congress almost immediately, which amended 
uh, Title VII to say, no, in fact, when you discriminate against someone because they are pregnant, you are engaged in sex discrimination. Um, uh, and, and so that's his, his analysis on equal protection, completely flimsy. And then he turns to a question of reliance interests, which is something the courts look at under stare decisis. When you decide, when you're deciding whether to overturn a decision, you ask, well, whether, have people come to rely on this decision? Because if they have, we ought to be very careful about overturning it. Uh, and there he basically just throws up his hands and says, well, we can't actually know. Um, you know, whether people have relied on uh, Roe or not. I mean, who is he kidding? This is a decision that has been around 50 years that has allowed women to, and men, as I was saying before, to to, to think about how to plan their lives, uh, to, to enter careers, to go to school, to make all sorts of critical life decisions, um, knowing that they have the option to have an abortion if they, you know, if there's a um, uh, an unwanted pregnancy and and they're not ready, they can't afford, they're not psychologically ready, financially ready, whatever. Uh, many you know families can't afford to have another child. So um, so to say cavalierly that uh, we can't know whether this decision, which protects probably the most important decision, you know, a woman makes. Um, we can't know whether this is, um, you know, women have relied on that. I mean, it's just, it's just as if, you know, he has never talked to a woman. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable decision. I was going to say that myself. So I want to turn to addressing the political nature of what this decision could mean. In a recent Slate op-ed, Leah Littman and Stephen Vladek write about why they are concerned by the court showing its political cards in this way. They write that some conservative legal commentators, Wall Street Journal, etc., say that there is no reason for concern. According to the journal, unlike Roe, the decisions protecting contraception and marriage equality, in quotes, have broad public acceptance, as evidenced by Gallup polls. David, can you remind us, what is the public opinion on Roe? Well, it's, it's a majority, and in many polls, an overwhelming majority, want Roe to be um, preserved, not overruled. And uh, you know, some polls mark a, a, above 70% of Americans who want Roe to be preserved, others uh, over 55%. Um, but the but it's clear that the majority view here is to to uphold Roe, not to reverse Roe. Of course, the court's job is not to like you know take a vote on um, on issues and and rule that way. That's what the legislature is there for. That's not what the court is there for. But it is the case that if the court, uh, I mean, it's supposed to be deciding issues of principle, and it's supposed to be deciding them even if they're unpopular. Um, but if the court gets too far out of step with where the country is on fundamental values, like whether a woman should have the right to make this decision. Um, you know, then I think it really does um, test the legitimacy uh, of the court. Historically, in our country, uh, the courts have rarely departed uh, very dramatically from where the people are on fundamental issues, you know, as polls measure them and the like. Mm-hmm. In a few instances, it has, and each time it has led to a backlash. It's 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 undermined their legitimacy. It's tested 
the court. And so, you know, I think, you know, if there, that what 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 we're likely to see here, if the court overturns Roe, is a very very powerful response from the American people, and that response, I think. Um, you know, we'll have, I think, two, uh, ultimately two beneficial effects. One, over time, and it will take some time, and there will be a lot of pain uh, in the interim, but over time, I think we will come to some uh, sort of, um, um, you know, consensus about protecting an abortion right. Look, if Ireland, a Catholic, deeply Catholic country, can do so, surely uh, surely we we can, but that will take a long time, and it will only happen if you know, people who care about the right engage and respond and and vote like their rights depend on it. The second thing that will happen, I you know, if if people engage, if there's the backlash that I think there likely will be, again, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, in part because the court has never before taken away a right from literally half the population uh, in a you know you know single uh, in a single stroke. Um, that response will should have some disciplining effect on the court. The court is not, you know, it, it, it has to operate in society. It has to pay attention. You know, this decision suggests that it's not. Um, but if there's a strong reaction from those of us who care about rights to this kind of decision, that will make it less likely that we'll see other decisions like this down the line. So what you're saying here is that we do have some some power in this. I think a lot of people feel really powerless after reading that draft opinion, after hearing the news. It's good to hear from you that we still have some role in this. Before we get to other things that we can do, I want to address a, a couple of more notes on just the analysis of the draft opinion and what that would could or would mean about the court. So um, it's clear from the draft opinion that Alito would like issues, again, not explicitly stated in the Constitution, to be policy issues. David French, a columnist at The Atlantic, wrote about how he thinks Alito got this right. The Supreme Court shouldn't be legislating rights. Justice Ginsburg in 1992 argued, quoting Oliver Wendell Holmes, that judges do and must legislate. So, David, can you help us here? What is the role of the Supreme Court, and and do they legislate? Well, I, you know, that, that's kind of a, you know, it's semantics. Uh, you know, well, yeah. they don't legislate in the sense of they don't pass laws like the legislature does. The legislature can you know, pass whatever law it wants on a wide variety of issues. It has, you know, it can take an uh, initiative. It doesn't have to wait for a case to come before it. Uh, it can change its mind, you know, the day after it uh, enacts a law, it could repeal it. Um, you know, the, so the legislature has a much broader authority than the courts do. And and when courts sort of get out of line, people say they're legislating. They use that as a kind of metaphor to say they're doing too much. And that's what Alito is saying about Roe. And many conservatives mm-hmm. have said that about Roe. Uh, you know, I, I disagree with that. I think I think that, um, as I said before, the, the, the framers of the Constitution drafted the Bill of Rights with broad terms like liberty, due process, equal protection, understanding that they could not foresee every, uh, you know, development uh, over the next several centuries, and they wanted this Constitution to last. And I think that that's the view, better view of the Constitution, the only view of the Constitution that's sort of consistent with 
uh, democracy or common sense, you know, but that's, that is clearly not the view of the conservative justices on the court, in, including Justice Roberts. I mean, there are six justices who would probably reject that view and take a more, a much more kind of originalist view that that's just not adequate um, when you're talking about core fundamental norms, again, like the right to abortion. You can't leave that to the political process precisely because it is a personal decision, just like you can't leave to the political process. So I, you know, I just fundamentally disagree with that view of how the Constitution should be interpreted. But that is, um, you know, that is certainly the view that six of the court's justices today hold. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you make because, you know, we elect our representatives. We know how often elections are. It, it seems that then certain things that we've grown to understand that are rights would then change with the whims of whoever happened to be elected at that time. And we can also, that can lead us into a whole other conversation about, you know, who is actually represented in uh, our electoral system and and whose, uh, you know, opinions and views matter and, and all of that. But I, I do want to go to something else that I think is really important, which is just as we are reading this draft opinion and trying to understand the reasoning that the court is using and how that will impact future rights, future legislation across the country, so is the opposition. And I guess I, I was wondering if you could, you know, talk a little bit about how this draft opens the door and, you know, perhaps even shows favorability for state legislatures who are hoping to usher other laws through that negatively impact bodily autonomy. Um, You know, I think, like, if this moves to the states, right, which it seems that's going to be true, I think there's a lot of concern because we're already seeing some kind of bold indicators from states like Louisiana and Tennessee. Louisiana just popped up a bill out of, you know, committee that is set to criminalize abortion, miscarriage, and IVF. Tennessee is also moving to make mail-order abortion medications a felony. Meanwhile, Alabama just banned gender-affirming care for transgender kids. This is like all part and parcel of the same thing. So what do you expect to see when this all moves to the states, if it does? Well, I do see, I do expect, I mean, we look, as you, as you point out, as your question points out, we've already seen some, um, uh, you know, very far-reaching um, acts by legislatures to restrict the rights of individuals to make personal decisions about their own bodies. Um, and that is, uh, you know, and we are going to, if, if, if this decision says that's fine in the realm of abortion, uh, you're definitely going to see legislatures push further and say, well, if it's fine in the, in the area of abortion, then it ought to be fine in the area of contraception. If it's fine in the area of contraception, then it ought to be fine in the area of gender-affirming uh, uh, care and, and the like. So, you know, the, to some degree, there's, there's very little limitation because essentially what the court is saying is we're going to be out of this business of, sure. of, of, of regulating what people can do, you know, of, of regulating what states and legislatures can do in uh, seeking to control people's decisions about their own bodies. That said, I think, as I said before, you know, much depends on how we respond. If, if mm-hmm. the nation responds... Uh, as I think we've already seen indications that it will, if the nation responds with a very, very powerful political rejection of this kind of 
reasoning of the of the, of this kind of decision of eliminating a right and and reaffirms in a political way the critical importance of bodily autonomy to human flourishing and and, and liberty and constitutional rights um you know i think that will put a check on how far the court can go so again you know it's in our hands not in their hands and i know that we don't like to opine on what will happen in the future but I have you here. I can only imagine that people want to know what you think um, about what we will see when we see the decision in its full form. Do you have any thoughts? Do you think it's going to stay? I think I, I, I can't. I have no uh, no ability to predict um, in any in any kind of detail. My, you know, my, if I were a betting person, I would bet that these five justices stick stay where they are. You know, I have the I, I hold this, you know, hold out this hope that uh, one of them might, you know, peel off and join Chief Justice Roberts, who is reportedly, uh, you know, taking a, a more modest view, still a, a view that would uphold this law, the law which um, prohibits abortions after 15 weeks, but would not overturn Roe and Casey, would simply, you know, limit the right to the first say 15 weeks of the of pregnancy you know i'm i'm some i have some glimmer of hope that one justice will go that way and then that will be the decision that really decides the case cuz i i fully expect the three liberal justices to uphold Roe and Casey but you know i i i'm not it's it's a slim it's a very very slim you know glimmer of hope uh that i hold there the ACLU represents many issues. This is a draft opinion that calls into question so much of what we work on. So from a legal perspective, I was wondering if you could shed a little bit of light on kind of how we're how we're viewing this and, and where we're going to be focused and also then where our supporters can help. We're going to be focused full force on restoring the right to abortion. And much of that work is going to be uh, political. Much of it is going to be uh, lobbying in in the states, uh, fighting legislative battles in the states. I think the politics will be significantly affected by uh, this decision. There, I think there are many many Republicans who've kind of uh, been able to sort of gesture at being opposed to abortion, while knowing because of the Supreme Court decision that their daughters could still get an abortion if they needed one. Um, that freedom is no longer going to be there. And so I think it'll be a moment of truth for a lot of Republicans. I think it'll be a moment of, you know, get up out of your seat for, 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 many, uh, for many Democrats. Um, um, and, and that will be the central battle uh, air, ground, will be the state legislatures, what kinds of laws they pass when this issue gets sent back to them. We will also be in court. Um, you know, we will be pursuing state constitutional uh, protections for the right to abortion in, in states where we have a, a, a shot at making uh, that sort of argument. We'll be making other kinds of arguments to, for example, protect, ensure that uh, if you live in a state that doesn't have the right to abortion, you can go safely go outside of that state, uh, get an abortion there, and that state can't try to restrict your freedom to do so, which some states have started talking about, but clearly is unconstitutional under the uh, under our constitution, so you know we're we're going to be doubling down on on, on this issue, um, but I think also we need to think about how the response to this issue may 
um, you know, affect all sorts of other fights um, because, you know, right. this is going to be a tidal wave. And, uh, you know, I, I think we need to be part of the tidal wave uh, of response. But I also think we need to think about how we can use that tidal wave of response to uh, shore up other rights protections from uh, you know what I, many people will f- will justifiably fear is going to be an onslaught from the Supreme Court. And of course, you know I think we naturally look to the midterm elections where you know we have a very robust voting rights operation. Uh, as you mentioned, a lot of this is going to be political. We have a whole team of folks that are ready to kind of plug people in to help in better ground races states. Um, for people who are willing or interested in participating in that, they can go to aclu.org slash abortion dash pledge. That's aclu.org slash abortion dash pledge. And that will also be in the description um, of this episode. So people can uh, plug in and get involved Um whether that's door knocking or phone calling or all different kinds of petition signing, we have plenty of things that that people can get plugged in on there as well. I mean, we have we our our people power. Um, our people power gives gives people the you know op- opportunities to engage in particular actions designed to protect rights, and I'm sure will be largely focused on. Uh, on, on abortion uh, rights. But, you know, the bottom line is vote like your rights depend on it and make sure that your friends and family vote like their rights depend on it and that every little bit helps, that every person who stands up and, 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 and participates in the, in the fight makes the fight that much stronger. Everyone, I think, you know, every, it's totally natural for everyone to think, oh, what can I do? What can I'm just one person Look, we are all just one person. Uh, you know, the only way we can be effective is is if, despite the fact that we're only one person, we get up with others in association, organize, demonstrate, lobby, vote, register people to vote, and the like. That is how uh, democracy works. We're good at it, so um, happy to. We're happy to work with you know all like-minded people in fighting for the preservation of this fundamental right and of so many others. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Really appreciate you being here with us today. Thanks, Kendall. Thanks so much for listening. We have a long fight ahead of us, but the ACLU was made for moments like this. To donate to support our fight against the attack on reproductive autonomy and all the attacks that follow, please visit aclu.org slash keep fighting. That's aclu.org slash keep fighting to get involved in our people power effort to protect abortion access. Please visit aclu.org slash abortion dash pledge. That's aclu.org slash abortion dash pledge. These links will be in the description box as well. Thank you so much for stepping up and working together with us. Until next week, stay strong.